Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you missed the announcements at the outset of the service, I wanted to just add my invitation uh, to November 7th. We're hosting a little newcomer connection, uh, either in between the nine o'clock and the 1015 service or after the 1015 service, just out by the fireplace um, because we wanna know you and we want to um, answer any questions that you may have and, and hear a little bit of your story or share a little bit of ours. We hope this is a place where you feel known and feel loved and connected. And so we hope that serves that purpose. So if you are new or new-ish, and we can uh, introduce ourselves a little bit or tell you about what's happening in the life of the church, it would be a privilege to do that. So please mark that on your calendars for November 7th. Um, I want you to think for a moment about some of your favorite traditions. And, and maybe how those get started in your family, in your life, how did those come to be? Um, if you know me very well, or if you've attended here very long, you have heard me talk before about how my family, every uh, New Year's Day, gathers together. So we're always in Ohio over New Year's. And about 45 years ago, so it's basically as long as I've been alive, my grandma started the tradition that on New Year's Day, we would share a meal and it's fondue. And so now there's typically anywhere between 30 to 40 people. There's card tables and dining tables in every room. There's uh, burning hot pots of oil on every table. Like every more grows up with certain scars from like that one cheese ball that wasn't quite like thawed out all the way and it, you know, explodes when you put it in there. And so it's like, a, it's a sign of being a more is that you've been burnt by oil somewhere. And, and I love it. Um, it's, it's a long meal. It takes forever to eat. You're cooking every bite of food individually. Um, we're all decked out in our Ohio State gear that we got for Christmas. And there's football. I know. Deal with it, people. It's, <laughs> there's football on the TV, and there's family around the table, and, and everybody. You're, it's welcome. And so if somebody's dating somebody or something like that, come, come sit. And, and eat with us, or if there happens to be somebody who's in town and you're hosting them and they're always welcome, the, the table expands every year and, and we sit around and we eat together and I love that meal. And somewhere along the way, um, my grandma and my grandpa and, and my aunts and uncles decided that this was a significant thing for our family to, to share this together. Yeah, it started as probably an idea that was in my grandma's mind that said, why don't we give this a shot? But it became something for us when it became a tradition that helped speak a little bit into what it means to be a more. Like it's, it's when you are entering into the family, when Sherry came to her first New Year's Day, like this is, it's kind of like this. And it's a place where, where no matter where you're coming from or what yesterday looked like or what tomorrow's gonna look like, you knew you belonged. And so if, if someone was to suggest that we consider a new tradition, that, that maybe we do something different, it's not just the loss of that event, 
but really it's the fear that you lose the meaning that the tradition is supposed to provide. But what happens when the tradition, instead of serving a greater meaning in itself becomes the meaning? So what happens if fondue on New Year's Day isn't about family? If it's not about shared meals that take a long time to eat and a place that you, are, that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that you belong, what if it fails to serve that purpose? Then the tradition at that point is no longer a blessing, but, but rather it becomes a burden. It's about the work of putting it on. It's about who has to do what and who's going to clean it up. Now at this point, throughout our study of the Gospel of Mark, we have seen Jesus interacting with these religious leaders of, of Israel known as the Pharisees. And most of the time, when Jesus has an encounter with the Pharisees, it dissolves into conflict. And so it's, I think it's easy for you and I to work through the Gospel of Mark together and to look at the Pharisees and see them as, as the bad guys, and it's understandable because in general, they've been pretty opposed to Jesus's proclamation of the gospel and of the kingdom that he has been proclaiming. Jesus doesn't value and elevate these traditions that are so important and so definitive for, for the Pharisees. In fact, sometimes he outright ignores them. We'll see that in just a minute. However, I want us to understand as we dive into this a little bit that the origins of the Pharisees, it really it stemmed from a positive effort to maintain the worship of, of Yahweh when the people of God were being sent into exile. So when, when they could no longer enter the temple to worship, it was an effort to create a group of people that would, re, would retain their distinctiveness, despite the fact that, that they were no longer living in Israel, despite the fact that they could no longer worship in the Chindle, they, they wanted to live as God's chosen family. So in that effort, this group of people, they would take some of the commands that were given to the priest when they led worship in the temple, and they applied them to people trying to lead worship in their community or in their home. And eventually, those same traditions that got applied to people seeking to lead worship in their community or in their home then got absorbed by kind of the community at large. And so over the course of time, what ended up happening is that the traditions ultimately became separated from their purpose. And they were no longer a blessing to the people, but very much became a burden. And instead of helping the people understand their distinctiveness as God's covenant family, it became this impossible standard by which some people were called righteous and other people were called unrighteous. So this is the sort of conflict, the source of the conflict, that, that Jesus and the Pharisees find themselves engaged in. We're going to turn to Mark chapter 7, but before we do, let's, let's pray before we open up God's Word together. Father, we do just come and we acknowledge your presence here with us in the midst of this. 
Lord, we pray that you would settle our hearts and minds to hear from you this morning. Holy Spirit, speak. May we as your church absorb what it is that you want us to understand about who you are and what your kingdom looks like. And may we live it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 7. I'm going to, instead of reading this entire passage through like I oftentimes do, I'm going to kind of take this in, in sections. So let's look at the first five verses. Uh, if you have your journals, this is in page 42. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Let's pause there for a moment. Notice one of the details at the outset of this. It says some of these scribes that have shown up on the scene here, it notes that they had come from Jerusalem. That, that's a journey of, of about 90 miles at this point. So the fact that, that some of these religious leaders are, are there at this point, putting in this degree of effort suggests two things. One is that the buzz surrounding Jesus has made its way all the way to Jerusalem. That, that people are hearing about what's going on up in, in, by the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, and the surrounding area. And, and so they've come up to see for themselves. And then two, that these religious leaders are highly motivated to do something about it. Which leads us to the confrontation that that we see unfold. Uh, just last week, I had the opportunity to um, officiate a wedding with a young couple. And so prior to that, we were doing some premarital counseling. And, and one of the topics that you typically engage in when you're trying to help prepare a couple for life as, as husband and wife is managing conflict, dealing with conflict. If you've been married, you know that that's probably something that at some point in time is gonna come up. And, and you're trying to prepare them for that reality. And, and one of the things that I always try to talk through with them is what you call the, the issue behind the issue, right? Like how many times do you find yourself, whether it's in marriage or just with a friend, coworker, whatever, when you find yourself in some point of disagreement, there's what I call the presenting issue. What has brought us to the boiling point? Where, where, what led to the conflict? But then there's the, the issue behind the issue. The, the, the issue that really is at the root of why you're disagreeing. So sometimes in marriage, right, it's very, has very little to do with leaving the toothpaste on the countertop, right? Oftentimes, if you have enough of a conversation with your spouse, the reason that something trivial has kind of triggered something in the marriage is oftentimes because either you haven't gotten time together, you, you've stopped talking about meaningful things, there's been some degree of neglect, some other critical thing that is now raising itself up over some trivial thing. 
And so as we look at this conflict unfolding in this encounter with Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, what's the present, presenting event, but ultimately what is the underlying issue? And what is the underlying issue here? The presenting issue is obvious. It's, it's what initiates the conflict is that the disciples lack this adherence to what the text calls the tradition of the elders. On face value, it, this looks like a hygiene issue, right? When you read this, you instinctively think, like, I, I kind of see the Pharisees' point here. But that isn't the issue. Right? They're, not, they're not confronting the disciples of Jesus because of, of a hygiene issue. They're, they're confronting them because, from their perspective, the disciples are ignoring a, a ritual that they celebrate that they partake in, that they believe makes them ceremonially clean. Or in other words, this is what separates them. This is what makes us distinctive. But if you and I were to comb through Old Testament laws together, we would find that there are specific cleansing rituals that are outlined for priests when they were in official capacity serving within the temple. But again, over the course of time, over centuries, the rabbis and the elders, they begin to codify these rituals. First, for the worship that was being led by people apart from the temple, it was born out of a good thing. How do we do life as exiles? But eventually as a governing tradition that was applied to everyone and it defined what it meant to be a faithful uh, member of the covenant community. So when you went to the marketplace and you were co-mingling with Gentiles who were ceremonially unclean, they're, they're the defiled ones, the unclean ones, you had to go through a ritual cleansing prior to eating. In fact, if you were in the marketplace and, and mingling with Gentiles, there was a whole bathing ritual that that was required. And this is just one example. Note in verse four, it says, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Who else is interested in knowing more about dining couches, by the way? <laughs> like that? We need to dive into that at some point in time. So think of it like this. Like think about in the Moore house, if uh, Sherry created a law that said no mud in the house. And in order for us to help keep the no mud in the law, uh, in the house, we developed a tradition that said, let's take off our shoes in the garage. In fact, maybe because that was a little dicey, we actually backed it up from there and said, we, we're gonna take off our shoes at the front of the garage. And then when you get to the end of the garage, before you go in the house, you take off your socks and there's a foot washing that you go through and then you enter the house. Well, the law is no mud in the house. That was something, I'm comparing Sherry to God here, I guess, but if that's, she's good, but she's not that good. Um, but the tradition are these things that were meant to protect it, but what happened is taking off your socks and shoes and washing your feet became law for the people. The traditions are, are intended to help you keep the law. They are given for a meaning but they've effectively become the law. And then verse five, so here's 
Here's the presenting issue, but it's getting at the heart of the issues. The Pharisees and the scribes, this is in verse five, asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Why, why are, do they eat with defiled hands? In other words, why don't they value and practice the things that make us distinctive? That separate us as God's covenant people from who the Gentiles are. That you've just been hanging out with, you just bought bread from in the market. Right? This is what makes us clean and them unclean. This is what makes us righteous and them unrighteous. See, this is the underlying issue. Yaroslav Pelikan in, uh, in his book, The Vindication of Tradition. So he's actually writing on the positive aspects of tradition, but he talks about the distinction between tradition that serves its meaning and its purpose and tradition that has become the meaning or the purpose. And he says it this way. He says, tradition is the living faith of those now dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of those still living. I think that captures it well. And that's, what, that's the nature of the conflict that we see here. It's between a living faith that, that understands the role of tradition and the value that it brings and a dead faith that has made traditionalism, has made the tradition itself the meaning. So they come to Jesus and they say, we, we are confronting a problem here. But Jesus flips the narrative now, and he reveals what the actual is. So we started with a problem confronted, and now we see the problem identified. The problem identified back in chapter 7 now, verse 6. Jesus is going to respond. He said to them, well, did the, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? <laughs> That's just so Jesus. Um, he says, as it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the command of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. We'll talk about that in a minute. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. See, Jesus is, is, is exposing what the critical issue is. They've come to Jesus, they've confronted him, and now Jesus is flipping the narrative. When, when COVID was um, first starting, when things were first starting to open up, so this is probably in like, I don't know, April or May of last year, some of the stores were reopening. And for the first time that I can remember as a family, we, we went out to do a little shopping. And I can still remember, we went out to like DSW. And so this was, at least for my kids, the first time that they were, were kind of out in public and there was new rules and people were masked up. And one of the things that they did, and you'll remember this in a lot of the stores, is that they would put arrows on the ground to direct traffic flow, right? 
And I remember that my, one of my daughters was looking for a pair of shoes and she got to the end of the aisle and she realized that she wanted to go back and check something out. And she sort of like looked at the floor and looked around and she started to go like this. And, and she looked at me across the way and she goes, loophole, like, <laughs> like if, if she walks backwards, somehow that would serve the purpose. See, Jesus is, he looks at the Pharisees. He, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He said, Isaiah called this one. And he said, you're teaching the doctrines of man and you leave the command of God to hold true to the, true the tradition of man. And then he goes on and he provides a, an example, a practice that, that was known at the time as Corbin. Corbin was a method of deferred giving. So some would commit their, their assets and their property to the synagogue when they passed away. But if somebody was in need, or even if, if somebody's own parents were in need, people would use this future commitment as a means of neglecting immediate needs. So it's kind of in other words that they would have aging parents who were being neglected because they had said, I'm, I'm committed to Corbin. I'd like to help you out. I really would, mom and dad. But I have, I've committed everything to Corbin. Interestingly enough, there was a provision in that type of deferred giving that allowed you to spend on yourself, but really not on, on others. So Jesus raises this. He, he says, the command of God is honor your father and mother. It's, it's number five of 10. And he says, you make void the word of God by your tradition you handed down. You're making void the word of God. And he says, and many such things you do. And he has a word for it. He quotes Isaiah and it says, it's, it's hypocrisy. So again, the question that we have to ask ourselves as the church is what is authoritative? What, what are we obedient to first? Where do traditions and, and really affinities or personal preferences supersede in our hearts and lives the command of God? If you'll allow me, I, I, I think that 2020 was a year where we kind of became accustomed to loopholes. Certainly it had its challenges and it raised up all kinds of things, but when we, particularly as we watched how the church navigate political conflicts and, and disagreements, we, we allowed in many, many ways the gravity of what was happening in our society, and don't mishear me, I'm not saying it wasn't important, the significance of that, but we allowed that to provide a loophole wherein I could demean or disparage somebody else. Did it, did it cause me to advance or promote things that weren't true? Did the situation in our culture and our society uh, create a loophole where I could actually hate somebody or sever a relationship with them? within a body that scripture tells us is supposed to be unified. And if social media was any indicator, I would suggest that perhaps it did. And it's not okay. And again, I don't want you to mistake what I'm saying here. I am not saying that as the body of Christ, that we don't disagree 
at times. I'm not saying that as the body of Christ that we don't have honest theological debate, discussions, how do we work this out? That does not give me permission to, to talk about you in a way that is demeaning or disparaging. It doesn't give me permission to post something about you or about someone else that isn't true. And it doesn't give me permission to act in a way that is outside of what God has prescribed for the church. So we think about like something like Ephesians chapter four. I don't have this on the screen today. Just hear this one. He's, Paul writes this. He says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. He goes on and he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. I don't have permission to set that aside. There's, there's no tradition, no man-made group or formula or issue or whatever that I get to just set that aside and say, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do as I will here. Again, I understand this is challenging, but one of the things that we are supposed to be as a community is a place that the world looks at us and sees who's in the room and said, there is no way that that group of people would be hanging out together unless there was something more going on. And that, that we need to preserve that. We need to challenge each other and encourage each other and think about how we treat each other and where. And, and again, he, uh, Jesus says to the Pharisees, and many such things you do. So what, what for us is authoritative in our lives? To what, or rather to whom, are we obedient first? So Jesus flips the narrative with the Pharisees. And in doing so, he flips their understanding, this core issue of what it means to be clean. What it means to truly live as distinctive, to be set apart as the people of God. And so this is where he really drives at, at, at what I'm calling the heart of the issue. And this is the third thing we see here. The heart of the problem Jesus says, is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Now in verse 14, it says, He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So from within, out of the heart, comes evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within 
and, and they defile a person. So now Jesus drives at, at the heart of the matter. He, he goes towards what's the corrupted source. Like if you, if you are a, a cook or if you like to bake, if you use ingredients and one of those ingredients is expired, right? And you add that in to whatever it is you're baking, the end product, what comes from that, what's a derivative of the source is going to be corrupted, inevitably. Like you're gonna taste that banana bread and something's gonna be off. Or you're gonna taste, my family, one of our other traditions is we always make creme brulee on, uh, when we celebrate our Christmas as like my nuclear Moore family in Ohio. We, we, we really do Christmas upright uh, back there. And, and one year, the, the cream that we used in the creme brulee, much to our surprise, was uh, expired. So you took that first bite, right? You knew right away something had been corrupted. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. And what's interesting for us in our culture and society is that the prevailing authority of our culture is the self. And the source by which we are supposed to be guided is, is our heart. So if culturally, to, to be clean in our, our society, to be righteous is the degree to which we are true to oneself. We have all kinds of sayings and slogans about you do you and, and it's our ultimate source of authority. Prophet Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked, and, and who can understand it? Carl Truman wrote a book in, entitled um, The Rise and Victory of the Modern Self, and it's, it's, it's driving at this very thing where in our current cultural milieu, each of us live as sort of our own source of authority. Jesus identifies the source of the issue, and it's inside of me. It's not, it's not something from the outside that's coming in and defiling me or making me unclean. It's, he says, it's out of the heart. And then he lists all the expressions of, of a corrupted source. Evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery. He's basically citing the violations of the Ten Commandments, coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. And if there's a list of those that we feel like, ah, I've kind of avoided most of them, I'd be willing to bet that there's something in their list to be like, yeah, I tripped up on that one. He's saying this is what produces these things. And make no mistake about it, the words of Jesus as it reads to us is offensive. In a, in, a, in a modern reading, modern understanding of the world, it's Jesus is offending us here. But I would also contend that when we are honest with ourselves, we know it to be true. Timothy Keller, um, he quotes the uh, German novelist Franz Kafka. And he says, Franz Kafka, Franz Kafka wrote this. He says, the state in which we find ourselves today is sinful, quite independent of guilt. And then uh, Keller goes on to elaborate and he says, in other words, we live in a world where we don't believe in judgment, we don't believe in sin, and yet we still feel that something is wrong with us. 
See, I think Jesus here is not, he's not dismissing moral law. Um, remember when he said on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've, come to, I've not come to abolish them, but rather to fulfill them. So rather Jesus is answering the question, how do I become clean? And his answer in the midst of it is, is it's beyond our ability. The issue is me. It's inside of me. It requires someone from the outside to come in and transform my heart. He isn't lowering the standard, he's raising it. And he raises it to a level that requires him. The gospel that Jesus proclaims isn't an outside-in gospel. It's not if I get my act together or not. It's not if I clean myself up together. It's not if I serve enough and do enough and impress you enough and do all the right things that ultimately makes me clean. It's an inside-out gospel. It's him coming in and transforming the very source from where we live, what he refers to as our heart, and then living from there. It sets us free from the bondage of, of man-made righteousness. And it liberates us for grace-given uh, holiness. This, Jesus proclaims, is what it means to be clean. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue. He's saying there's a, there's a source from what you live from that if I don't come in and transform it, it will only ever bear corrupt fruit. But great news. That's why he came. That we might be new creatures. So he's, he's driving at the work that he came to do. I, um, I'll close with this on Friday. I had the opportunity to, um, to host a memorial service for a 55-year-old man, healthy, strong, and, and, and just um, unexpectedly passed away. And I didn't know him. Um, I didn't really know his family, but over the course of the time that we had together preparing for the service and putting that together, I felt like I got to know them and got to know him a little bit. And his brother, his name was Dan, his brother said, there was Dan 1.0 and there was Dan 2.0. He said, Dan 1.0 was mean and surly and, and selfish. And he said, but somebody from Chapel Street invited him to a team men's ministry on Friday morning and he, and he heard the gospel and understood it and responded. And he said, then there was Dan 2.0. He's like, everyone loved being around Dan 2.0. It's a transformed heart. It's what he does. It's what we need. It's what we need him to do in us. Let's pray together. Father, we do just thank you for this time. Again, we thank you for the opportunity to, to open up your word and to continue to be challenged by who you call us to be, Lord. We want to live this out by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. We pray that you would continue your work of sanctification where you are removing the things that are not of you, that don't belong, and you're seeking to build up character in us that resembles you that we would be men and women in a place together a community that more closely resembles you 
So Jesus, would you forgive us when we create for ourselves loopholes where we elevate the traditions of men and we make what it means to follow you about our rules and our regulations and the way we do things and we neglect your very commandments. So it's not okay. Jesus, would you help us to see with clear eyes the work that you seek to do in our lives. We thank you for the salvation that we have in you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.